Welcome to the pod. I'm your host, Austin Serhoff. On today's episode, I chat with a friend of mine from the Fitter Faster Swim Tour named Marina Spadoni. Marina is a professional swimmer training in West Palm Beach, Florida, who was also a collegiate athlete at the Arizona State University. Marina and I met when I was training professionally out in Arizona in the 2015-2016 collegiate season. She was a senior and I was a professional. Uh, I had head out there to train with her head coach, Bob Bowman, who had just taken over the team and had brought this big group of us pros with him from Baltimore over to Arizona. I really wanted to talk to Marina for two reasons. Number one, we've worked a handful of fitter faster clinics together and I've always enjoyed her perspective that she gives the kids when she runs these clinics. Uh, We discussed that in the episode, along with a lot of other things she believes about the value of clinics, um, what she draws from her teaching background. But I also wanted to talk to her because she kind of defines why I started this podcast. Marina is a professional swimmer, not in a way that's defined by what she's paid for it, because she's not really paid directly for her swimming, but... She has a couple sponsorships and she gets paid for her namesake when she goes to these fitter, faster swim clinics and works with kids, but she doesn't make money from swimming. She's not an Olympian, which is usually how the outside world defines being a professional swimmer. And I think what's really cool about her is she calls herself a professional because of how she carries herself through the sport, her process, her goals, her dedication. So I really enjoy your perspective, like I said. I think you will too. And after we're done with Marina, at the end, we're also going to start a segment series uh, called Want to Know Something Cool with Matt. So a little background. Matt Hoyland is one of my best friends uh, from Swimming at Texas. And him and I, our best chats happened when we talked about stuff not swimming related. We both have your classic... um, maybe one deep web dive into a topic, but we don't really know about it. And we'd always like to chat with each other and stretch each other's minds with weird topics. And the one that we covered today is the one that kind of started my whole thinking about how it seems like more often than not, when Matt and I end up on the phone together, we have these awesome conversations and they always hit a second gear when Matt will pause and he'll say, want to know something cool. And I know that something awesome is always coming next. I have a lot of fond memories of those conversations and I kind of wanted to just get down some of those topics that we've talked about so that everyone else can hear just how cool Matt is and how much fun we have when we chat with each other. So I hope you enjoy it. Uh, We're going to talk to Marina first and then we'll bring in Matt at the end. Let's get started. All right, I'm here with Marina. Uh, she is currently eating a pumpkin spice muffin <laughs> that I'm assuming that she baked and just got done with a double. How are we doing today, Marina? I'm good. Um, I really needed this muffin. I'm not going to lie. Today's practice is really hard. Uh, I think you- I, cr- I cried a little in my goggles, but it's <laughs> okay. It's so I learned about the term croggling within the last couple <laughs> of years, and I want to know if you've had experience with that or if that resonates with you i have uh, never heard of croggling 
I've never heard that word, but I think I'm going to add it to my vocabulary because it, it's, 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 that's very accurate. It's one of those words that like the letters in it are so tactile that mm-hmm. you can immediately it's you can picture someone crying. It's like almost better than saying crying in your goggles, like croggling. It kind of reminds me of like, I don't know, when I hear the word croggle, I think of some really weird, ugly Pokemon. But yeah, I could see someone <laughs> crying in their goggles, too. You got Croglador, and then that upgrades to Croglodon, and then that cro- <laughs> that upgrades to Croglazard when we're in the middle of winter training, right? Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So you were Croggling, but it should be noted you are someone who is training. Um, you're how old now, Marina? Twenty six. So you're twenty six, um, going for twenty twenty one, the Olympic trials, and running fitter faster camps. Yes. Um, and you also recently moved, right? Yeah. Um, moved down to West Palm Beach, Florida. Weather is perfect here. So I can imagine. Super nice. For, I just talked to uh, Elvis Burroughs the other day. Mm, yeah. And he, he's in Orlando now and he thinks it's like snowing up here or something. He's got a very different <laughs> take on weather, though. <laughs> I feel it's when you live so long in Florida, your perception of what is cold is very skewed. So, and yeah. So, where are you training at right now? Um, so, I'm at Kaiser University and training with Coach Adam. I'm going to butcher his last name uh, Epstein. Epstein? I don't know. It's I'll one take of, your word for it. Yes. Um, <laughs> it's one of the. I don't know. <laughs> one of the two. <laughs> um, Coach then... Adam, if you're listening, Marina will try her best to learn your name. You also, you guys also, you just started training with him, what, this week? I mean, you yeah, just moved the other day. Yeah, yesterday was my first practice. Yeah, so moving was kind of a whirlwind. Um, uh, we moved down on Thursday night. So we started driving at 4 p.m., didn't get in till midnight, um, crashed on Norbert's friend's couch. Um, and then moved in to our apartment Friday morning. Literally, I just like unloaded the whole truck and then we had to go to the airport for a fitter and faster camp. So like, this is like my first couple days in the actual new apartment. So it's been crazy. Oh, that sounds like a big wad of stress balancing, getting to practice, getting mm-hmm. traveling to a fitter faster camp and doing moving did you have any help? I feel like the big X factor with moving is how much help do you have? Because if you're doing it solo, like, good night. That's yeah. terrible. Um, I mean, Norbert stayed this weekend, so he kind of got some things organized while I was at the camp. So that was a big help. Um, mm-hmm. And then Norbert has his friend here that's helping. So, um, yeah, it was it was not bad, honestly. It's It was better than moving alone. I'll just say that. Mm-hmm. So. Yeah. yeah, as a guy who's moved solo a couple times, and actually, when we first met, um, when I moved out to Phoenix and you were on the ASU swim team yeah. in 2015, I had just gotten done a solo move where I packed everything into my Ford Fusion sedan, yeah. <laughs> drove from Baltimore to Phoenix over the course of like a couple weeks with some extended pit stops. Yeah. And then moved that entire car into an apartment so- solo. Yeah. 
Yeah. It's and I yeah. And and while all the while getting to practice the next practice the next day on time. Like, oh yeah, and also my car's still half full with some paintings yep. that I randomly have, even though I'm a twenty five year old man. Yeah. <laughs> and and a blender. But here I am at some practice. Right. I know, it's crazy. Um that cross continental drive is pretty gnarly though. I did that last summer and not fun at all. Yeah, so you've pinballed around a couple times over the last year. Why don't you, uh, can you take us through the moves that you've made? Yes. Because you were in Phoenix up until last year, even after you graduated from Arizona State. Right. So um, in Phoenix, and I was training with the Arizona State club team there. Um, And it's almost all high schoolers. And I remember being like, kind of feeling like I was lost there. Like I already had my two Olympic trial cuts for the 50 and hundred free at that point. And I was just like, I am not sure what I'm doing. Like, it feels weird that I'm training with high schoolers that don't really have the same goal as me. Um, and then I'm training with Jared Arroyo who swims the four I am. So it's like kind of a mixed bag. And I remember just like feeling like really lost and texting my best friend Inge. And I was like, Hey, I want to come to Iceland for a week. I just like, think I need to get out of here so I remember going up to Iceland having a great time training with their some of their national teamers up there and wait so you actually got to train when you were out there yeah so like basically we would just went and trained every day and went to the gym swam kind of hiked around saw all the stuff so it was fun it honestly was a really good um I think break from the phoenix um life but yeah. And also the type of training you had been doing, because I imagine you were, like you said, you were training with high school kids and a 400 IM or yeah. you were probably doing training that was a little bit more higher volume. Um, I imagine it was nice to take a break from that, get some new scenery as well. I have to ask, did you check out any of the horses while you were in Iceland? Uh, my wife and I actually went a couple years ago and one of you know you go all the way over there and you realize wait these wild horses are insane this is awesome yeah they're super cool i remember i didn't i didn't see any horses this trip but the last time i was there in 2015 we did this huge like around the island drive and we saw these horses um so cool and i remember when we were driving we saw this couple playing these those big huge i think the swiss alphorns they were just like off on the side of the road playing these huge horns and we pulled over because we thought it was like a landmark. So we like run over there to like go play these horns with them. And they're actually their horns, but they let us play them. And it was really cool. Um, and then we saw horses after that. And it was a, a very, it was a great magical time. That sounds like a, a day straight out of like 1373 or something right? like I was that. Like, That's so cool. And we're all wearing our How like did... knit jumpers. So it was, it was quite a, an experience. <laughs> I imagine it's a pretty primal thing to hear someone play one of those horns. Yeah. And then they were like positioned. So they were like straight into the mountains. It was like exactly like a postcard, honestly. That's why we thought like they were just like kind of like these landmark things, kind of touristy, but like, nope, they had just brought their Swiss Alphorns to just play in the mountains of Iceland. Right. Me, like near you, we'll fire up Netflix or in your case, you'll cook uh, b- pumpkin spice muffins, but <laughs> couple Icelanders they're like you know what it's Tuesday night I'm gonna grab my horn and blow it into the mountains like I think that's super cool <laughs> there's like you know yeah. like, there's other ways to do, there's other ways to do stuff I know yeah. but anyway back but 
back to uh, your latest trip. So I imagine that gave you a little bit of perspective. Yeah. Um, so I met some really cool swimmers there and a really interesting coach. And he had a really different way of looking at swimming. And we weren't doing a lot of yardage there, but we are doing things really focused on details. And it was kind of new for me because like everywhere I've kind of been, we've I've been a higher volume swimmer. Like even as a sprinter, I did a lot of volume um, growing up at mm-hmm. Mission Viejo and then, you know, moving all over the place. So I've definitely been a higher volume swimmer. And it was a different perspective to like look at swimming as more of a precision sport than um, just pounding the yardage. So that kind of opened my eyes to something I felt like maybe I was missing and I could really like um, hone in on. And then me and Ingi spent a couple of days just playing in the water and like kind of like trying these new things like, oh, we saw Caleb Dressel swims like this. Oh, what do you think of this when I do this? And then I was like, oh, what does my backstroke look like when I do this? And kind of just spending some time just having fun and going back to the roots of swimming, like when you're a kid and being like kind of messing around in the water. Mm-hmm. And so that was a great reset for me. And I kind of realized in that moment, I was like, I need to leave. I need to find something new and find something where I'm with swimmers that have the same mindset as me. Um, and like are doing this because this is what they love to do and know what it takes to kind of sacrifice their time and maybe a little bit of their career um, professionally to pursue swimming on a higher level. So mm-hmm. uh, that's when I met, met Anton McKee. He actually went to Alabama. He's a breaststroker. And he was training in Iceland as well. And he's like, hey, I'm moving over to train with Sergio Lopez in September. He's like, maybe you should look into that option. And I was like, all right, well, yeah, we'll see how that is. Um, I got back to the States, called up Sergio. And he's like, yeah, when can you come over? And so that was kind of, it wasn't a really hard choice to make. Um, They had a great group of pros there. And that had to have been pretty exciting for you because you're out in Phoenix and you're putting in high volume. And then this established coach, this is after 2016, correct? This is last this year, This is right? September 2019, yeah. Yeah, so at this point, the res- the Sergio resume speaks for itself. Mm-hmm. Um, everyone that he's coached both when he was at Bowles and as a member of the Singapore coaching staff. Yeah. You get this email. It must have been really exciting. Yeah. I was like, oh, I thought I was really going to have to convince you kind of thing. Like, um, so it was kind of exciting that he was just like, yeah, come on over. Um, we have space for you. And so that was probably mid-September. And then by end of September, I had packed up my car. Or I didn't pack up my car. I packed up a huge moving van. I had booked a 10-foot moving van, and I got to the place, and they're like, oh, we only have 25-footers. So I took a 25-foot moving van and drove it from Phoenix to Virginia in three days with probably all of a bedroom in it. So it was, like, completely empty. <laughs> Wait. So is this one of those semi-trucks? Yeah, is that, I literally drove somewhere a semi-truck. Somewhere on the way to a semi-truck? Yeah. So it was, wow. like, insane. Big, big rig marina. Yep. Trucking across the country. I, that is quite the mental image. Basically. So, yeah. Um, made it in a day faster than I thought I was going to. Um, so I made it for Saturday practice, which was fun. <laughs> you know, a lot of people, they'll do a cross-country move. And, <laughs> yes. And it's like, 
feel it out, take a week or two, stretch, hang out with some friends, and then start the new job, maybe fire off a couple Instagram posts, which you can do if you're a swimmer too. But for the swimmer, it's the moving truck's parked, I'm off to swim practice. Literally. (laughs) And so you were thrown right into it. It was just, I'm out of Phoenix, I'm into Blacksburg. And 100%. So what were your first impressions of the training change, um, Sergio's coaching style and your new teammates when you first got there? I think it was really exciting because like I had like officially made this decision. I think it was like the first time, like I actually considered myself a pro swimmer, not some like swimmer who just like happened to like come back and made their trials cut at like a master's meet, which is Mm -hmm. kind of what I did. Mm-hmm. Um, like I was like, I made the transition to like a rec summer or I don't know how you would put that to like a pro summer. So like I was finally surrounded with the people, like these people that had this like-minded mentality. And it was so funny. Like when I came, I drove into my apartment the first day, um, some of the girls came out and greeted me and I, <laughs> it's such a weird moment. Like I remember it was like Farida Osman um, and she was like the one that stood out because like when I was at ASU, the ASU girls really looked up to the Cal girls. They just had like this air about them. They were very like strong, confident swimmers and like had this very sophisticated air about them Mm -hmm. when they were on deck, especially at Pac-12s. So like I had always like been a huge fan of Farida and I like am a pretty like I feel like normal person. I don't have like fan. I'm not a fan of a lot of people, but I was like a huge fan of Farida for some reason. And then she came out and she's like, just normal. She's like, Hey, like, how's it going? And it was kind of like this weird, like fangirl moment. Like, Oh wait, like we're kind of on the same level now. And like, we swim the same events. We, you know, compete at the same meets. And it was just kind of a weird moment. It went from like, Oh, I'm, I'm part of this now kind of moment. Right. And I've actually, that's something I've thought about myself in the past, because you touched on something that I want to hone in on for a sec. Uh, Just this idea of identity and the different phases of being a swimmer. Mm -hmm. And even, like you said, even when you were training sort of full-time at ASU, or would you say you were training full-time? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Training full-time at ASU, um, someone who had two Olympic trial cuts, you still didn't quite see yourself as a pro swimmer. And I wonder if it's almost like this group of people made you feel okay with calling yourself that like you almost and also seeing Frida Osman and all these other girls and guys who are pro swimmers and called themselves pros and you realize you you were their equals. Yeah. I wonder if that made you feel okay calling yourself a pro as well as as opposed to like, ooh, is it weird if I call myself a pro? Because I've been there as well. And I've talked to others as well about that. Yeah, I think um, just kind of having that acceptance and being like, it's okay that you don't have a normal nine to five job and you're 25, Mm -hmm. 26 years old. And like, that's what we're all doing here. And it just kind of was like this sense of like, Oh, okay. Like we're all doing this because I have like met a lot of like, not resistance, but like uh, judgment, I guess. I mean, I'm sure you have too, when you were, um, at ASU, like, oh my gosh, why would you move all the way from home to the other side of the country to train? Um, and like everyone I graduated with is starting families, having babies, getting married kind of thing. 
mm-hmm. buying houses, the, the typical. So it was just kind of like, and I was a teacher before I started swimming again. Like I had a normal job. I was an adult. I had my own apartment at a car. I had like all the normal stuff that an adult goes through. After right, college. you had stability. You had stability at your disposal, waiting for you. Exactly, and so when I decided I was like gonna kind of give all that up to be a swimmer again, people were like very shocked and very like, "Oh, why though? Like you weren't like this amazing swimmer in college." And it's funny now because like they said that to me before I like kind of had any trials cuts or had any success or sponsors. And now the same people are like, wow, you've inspired us. Like, you're so inspiring kind of thing. And, right. and it's, it's kind of a weird thing. Like, oh, but you told me not to do this. Like, it's been really strange to see both sides of people. Yeah. And I've, and like you said, I was experiencing that too, even through 16. And even now, um, as I've now fully accepted my own status as being back in training. Yeah. And like you doing fitter, faster camps. Um, and other jobs to support my training. The outside stuff never really bothered me. Um, and this is just, you know, yeah. differences in perspective between you and I. But I was always my my own biggest critic. Mm-hmm. And shame would often pop up. So even when I was 25, and by the way, I'm 29 now. So you can imagine right. the the internal voices that I have to drown out sometimes. But it would be... You know, I'm 25. I'm here in Phoenix going to bed at 9 or 10 every night. Mm-hmm. Um, obsessed with the food I eat, going to swim practice twice a day. And meanwhile, like you said, my friends are going off. And I would count moving to Phoenix as a 20s experience for a kid from Baltimore. Right. Um, but they're going off having jobs, experiencing things, traveling the world. And I'm at swim practice. And that mm-hmm. was definitely hard to reckon with, especially when 16 was over. And I had to be like, okay what do I have to show for yeah. this? So I wonder, and I guess that's a good, a good segue into talking about your goals. So what do you want to accomplish now? Do you have set goals or are you for, more focused on your process these days? Um, I definitely have set goals. I think the pandemic has made me slow down a little bit and focus more on the process. Um, mm-hmm. Because I was like, okay, these are the goals. Like, you know, these are the times I have to hit, blah, 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 blah. Um, and it kind of, like, made me, like, take a step back and, like, reevaluate. And, like, why am I really doing this? Like, is it because I, like, I need to be on the team? Or is it because I really just truly enjoy the sport and want to get as much out of it as I possibly can? Um, so, yeah, I think resetting and being like, okay, if I don't make the team, it's not like all of this was a waste. I feel like I really have grown as a person and matured and like have learned so much more about swimming than I even knew through college collegiate swimming. So it's been a really great experience and I've met so many good people too. So yeah, I mean, the goal is obviously I want to perform my best. I want to make finals in the 50 and hundred free at trials and you know, mm-hmm. just kind of swim with the best of the best um, and really, you know, put my best foot forward and put a show out for everyone. So and and ring out. I think a lot of what drives us, especially when we stick with it later, is this maybe this a nagging idea that we, we still have a little bit more potential to ring out as well. Exactly. hundred percent. 
100%. So Olympic team, obviously fun. And you and I both have trials cuts mm-hmm. and we'll be there next summer. Um, I wonder how the ISL, the International Swim League, um, for those who don't know, shapes your goals. Like, do you, do you have visions of wanting to be on a, one of those teams now that this exciting new league has been started up? I think that... Is it, is it an exciting prospect to you? Is it something that gets you out of bed in the morning or are you more focused on time goals, um, Olympic trials, finals, et cetera? I, when the ISL first came out, I was like, I need to be on a team. Like, this is the goal. Like, this is so exciting for me. Like, because I'm a very team driven swimmer, like I love being around a team. I love team energy. I love relays. Like I live for relays. So like when this prospect came out that I could possibly be on a team type event again and swim relays with the best of the best and not just limited to like Americans, but the best in the world. Um, that was a super exciting thing for me. And I am, I would say a very strong short course swimmer. Like I've definitely mm-hmm. like become a long course swimmer, but short course is really where I shine because of my underwaters. So when this uh, ISL came out, I had just started swimming again. So like I was like fresh back into the sport and had a lot of events with no times because all my times mm-hmm. had expired. So I was like, right. You were, you were Marina Spadoni. And then in the program it was NT. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Swimming in the first heat, that, like kind of thing. Wow. So that's such yeah. a, wow. <laughs> even that, but even that, like you, it seems like the pattern that's emerging here is you've had these big moments over the last couple of years, like when you were in Iceland and then, through the pandemic where you've basically gotten to take a step back and take a look at what's really important to you about the sport. And even little reminders, like when your name's in the program with no time, mm-hmm. like, yeah, I'm really in a new phase yeah. in my swimming. It was, it was really like a, a turning a blank page, you know, like Marina Spadoni was not attached to ASU anymore. I had kind of, I had gone already three years since I had competed. So I like, Retired in six early 16 when I graduated. And then I didn't swim again or compete again till like, it's been like a year and a half since I last, when I first competed. So like April, 2019 is mm-hmm. when I started competing again. So mm-hmm. no one knew who I was. Like, it was like just some random girl that was on the heat sheet, like with no time. No one recognized me. There was enough time that had passed. They were like, oh, okay, who is this? So I kind of got to reinvent my identity as a swimmer, which was kind of a cool, scary process. But also exciting. Like it was exciting. I got to be whatever I wanted to be. And, you know, I think I made the decision to not let so much pressure ride on the results, but allow like my success to be defined by how I felt in that race and like what I did well and like, did I actually have fun racing or was it kind of a burden to race and like, kind of like, you know, focusing on different things, like intangible things, less so of times. And I think that was really freeing for me not to be so caught up in times. Right. Cause when we're in college and we're deep in the thick of our, college swimming identities, being a part of a team, having very specific goals that we're all moving towards. Mm -hmm. You can go, and this is maybe just my experience, and you can go four or five meets in a row where you dread every single race. 
and it's just like well it's just a dual meet like i'm it's okay that i'm like i hate this right Right. now like i'm getting fifth in the point that i am (laughs) yeah at a january dual meet in georgia when i'm allegedly the best on our team but then it's okay ncas is coming and then you look back and you're like, why, why would I do that? Like you do it to yourself then, but now you're like, why would I do that to myself now? And that's so interesting that you bring that up, that you're choosing to enjoy every moment in your swimming, even on t- days like today when you need your pumpkin spice <laughs> muffins because you're so beat up from practice. Exactly. I think also um, like it comes down to the fact that like in college you're young and you like have this mindset of like kind of invincibility or like you know it's not gonna end it's gonna be fine and then like I think both of you have gone through the process where like it was done like it was over and then there was like oh oh my gosh and so now coming back to the sport you're like I know that there's a time limit on this like and if I don't enjoy what I'm doing then why am I doing this and we got to process what we like and what we liked and we didn't like from our original experience. It's not like we threw everything out for right. sale, right? We're still swimmers. We're still, in your case, Marina Spinoni, in my, in my case, Austin Suroff. Yeah. But we're now picking and choosing our own paths and navigating yeah, them. Exactly. So I want to know. So you, Marina Spadoni, sheds the ASU. Um, how, what's the word? Identity that you've had for half a decade, yeah. maybe more. And you show up to Blacksburg and specifically, how did the training feel different to you once you got there? Because you have this awesome group of people, you're charting this new path. What was exciting about the difference in the training? Um, I think it was like the first practice scene. We were done with practice and then everyone stayed after practice to work on dives or to work on little details. And I was like, Oh wow. Like this is cool. Like this is what I was looking for. I wanted people that were Mm -hmm. kind of nerdy about swimming and like, just kind of like really into the sport. And they wanted to do that extra little, like, Oh, watch my dive, film my dive. Okay. Now let's look at the dive together. And this is all just like from the team this isn't the coaches saying okay you guys have 10 minutes after practice to work on dives this is like literally the coaches left and we're just like messing around on deck working on like little details so i think that was like wow like this is what i wanted and that's when you felt like yeah exactly that almost like you've been looking for this for a couple years yeah so did you feel like the team culture reshaped how you thought about how you thought about your approach to the sport because you had talked about how in Iceland Mm -hmm. you started thinking more about being smart about swimming and being technical with your details and your thinking you're staying after practice you're doing all these dives um did it shape how you thought about swimming outside the pool as well yeah it did and like I hadn't really given a lot of thought to the mental aspect of swimming until I met the other pros And, like, of course, like, I know that the mental aspect is huge in the sport, especially as an individual sport. But, like, seeing and talking to other swimmers about, like, meditation and, like, we would go to, like, coffee shops and tea shops and literally just sit around and talk about, like, okay, like, I tried this, this, and this, and I had a great practice. Or I tried this, this, and this, and it really didn't work for me. And kind of just, like hammering out the little details of like the mental side of the sport and it was kind of cool because like 
we were kind of we were able to support each other in a way that I hadn't found before. Like if someone was really struggling mentally with a practice, um, we were able to kind of like come together and like bring them up and bring them back to our level again. And like vice versa, if I Mm -hmm. was like not having a good practice, like my teammates would be like, okay, let's do this. Like you got it. Like kind of thing. And like would take time after the practice to like, you know, talk about it and see like what went wrong during my practice. And it was it was really cool to like start to kind of channel and like work on that mental side of swimming as like a team. Mm-hmm. And what techniques that you gathered from your teammates have you found have you found that you have stuck with that you continue to use either for swimming or in your life that you learned in your time in Blacksburg? Because um, you mentioned yeah. meditation. Um, I'm wondering if while you're meditating, you also got into any visualization or breathing techniques, if you incorporated into your, um, into your pre-race strategy, yeah, so um, just anything you got on I, that. I tend to look at swimming a little differently, um, than I feel like most swimmers do. I look at, at it more so? as like an art form and like, I'm like practicing, like it's a rehearsal kind of thing. But I'm not focused on times. I'm not time-oriented. I'm not, you know, one of those people that's very meticulous about those little numbers, details. I look at it more as, like, this really, like, great art form that I get to um, perfect. And so, Mm -hmm. of course, I, like, know, like, numbers, like, kick count and things. But those aren't things that motivate me. So, like, for me, I struggle with, like, visualization meditation. Um, I don't know why it's something that's really hard for me. I can't visualize. This is really weird. I cannot visualize in first person. I always visualize in third person. Like I'm watching myself do the race and I have practiced. I've tried recording myself talking about my race um, and every one of the steps that I'm going to do. And every single time I cannot visualize myself in first person. I'm always visualizing myself in third person. I wait, yes. can I cut in? Because I want to know how you've adapted to that because I'm the exact same way. And I'll give you a very specific that, that I'll, I'll let you know that I am being straight with you here. Um, when I try to meditate and, and I love visualization and meditation. Um, I think it helps mm-hmm. me clear my head and relax. But when I try to visualize a race, cause I hear all these stories about how Michael Phelps yeah. could visualize his 200 fly on a stopwatch and go his exact yeah. time in his head, right? I can't get the POV locked yes. on myself. Like it's literally like the camera in my head swings back and forth on a boom around me and I can't get it to just stay on me. And I was wondering, is that, is that how it is for you? Or what is, what is the camera like for you in your head? Because maybe there's others that are like so this So it's as super well. weird. I can first person visualize my underwater kicks. I don't know why. Like I can like visualize myself like doing the actual underwater kicks and I can get to 15 perfectly. It's as soon as I do my first breakout stroke, it comes to a camera angle that's like a little bit above and behind. Like you're watching the race from above, like with one of those sky cameras. And I cannot get mm-hmm. back into the point of view where I'm like actually swimming. And it, I, I don't know what it is. It drives me nuts. I've tried like so many different things and it's just really quite strange. 
And so how have you adapted to your feeling about swimming as art form instead of um, like hard science? How have you adapted to that to your mental strategy and meditation so I guess and all that? I could compare it to like yoga where like it's really like connected to breathing. So instead of doing meditation that's visualization based, I do meditation that's more breathing based and kind of like just using that breath to connect to all of the different parts of my body. Because I do, I think I struggle mm -hmm. with connection in the water. So when I started doing um, breath to body connection meditation, it, I could see it started to translate into my swimming in a very like, I don't want to say abstract, but like, I don't know, it was a really interesting like crossover how they both kind of intertwined without consciously doing it because of swimming. So I did meditation, breathing meditation just because I felt overwhelmed. And then I kind of was like, oh, okay, they kind of are starting to like intertwine here. So, yeah. So, but yeah, and back back to swimming as art form, because that's emerging as a pattern here. Um, you can feel its effects mm -hmm. on your swimming, but it's not something that a scientist could write down and chart measurably. It's, it's connecting with you almost exactly. on a spiritual level. Yes. Yeah. By the way, this crew that you have in Blacksburg, and especially after what we just talked about, I feel like I'm listening to you talk about being a part of like a 90s <laughs> art collective in Brooklyn or something. Like, it just sounds like there was so it much was creative energy coming out of you guys at the time. a very eclectic group of people. Like everyone was very like kind of weirdos in their own way. Like we had Camille who was very like into like spirituality and yoga and like kind of, you know, I would say like cheesy aligning the chakras and things like that. And then we had uh, Jonathan Rudder from Yale who was doing, um, he was working in a lab at VT about bird watching. So a couple weekends we went bird watching as a team just to like kind of, um, you know, de-stress and get some activity in. Just like really a great group of people, but all of us were very, very different. I'm incredibly <laughs> jealous of this. <laughs> yeah. Especially as a guy these days, I've been training by myself the last couple of years. Um, the idea of, I mean, I'm, gonna, I'm just going to call you guys a collective. <laughs> yeah. The idea of a collective with all this creative energy and support, it must've been such a cool it thing. Cool. Um, and so you guys, and at some point the, um, the art and the, the spirituality, there also has mm -hmm. to be actual training. Did you, and did you have a shift in how you approached the training as well in terms of how often you went to practice or how much yardage you did or the specific things that you focused on while you Definitely. were there? So I felt like when I was in Phoenix, I was like, grind, 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 like as, like as much effort as I can possibly put into one practice and just put it all in like physical, mental, like just mm -hmm. all of the practice. Like it was just was blasting with all this energy basically. And like I got to VT and I tried to train like that. And I remember, I think Sergio said it or maybe Subi. He was like, wow, it was Subi, definitely Subi. He was like, wow, you're a really hard worker. Like you just work hard and grind. And I was like, yeah, that's basically what I've been doing my whole life. Yeah, that's yeah. the swimming mantra. He was like, well, <laughs> wouldn't it be better if you just 
channeled all that like hard work energy into like you know focusing on like being perfect or as close to perfect as you can because we were doing this set it was like hundreds and it was on a pretty tight interval and I was just like crushing the set and I remember like hitting the wall and like being like wow I'm holding like really great times um not that I remember the times because like I said I'm not number oriented as soon as I see the time it's out of my head but yeah I was like wow this is like Like, I'm crushing it and then after the practice Subi was like well, you're breathing off of every wall and like your breakout strokes weren't very good and you kind of had your head too high, kind of like all these little details that I could have fixed um, and should have been focused on. But I was so focused on just grinding and just like being as fast as I possibly could um, without even focusing on the details. And then I remember we did the same or similar set like the next day and I forced myself to focus on the details and I forced myself to do the same kick count off every wall, not to breathe in or out of the walls. Mm -hmm. And my times were significantly slower. And I was like, Oh my God, this isn't working. Like, I don't want to train like this. I want to just go fast. Um, And it really was like kind of like pulling back a little bit so that I could work on the details. And I think that was the big shift. Um, to where I was to where I'm kind of going right now. And shake, shaking off a single-minded idea of practice where it's like, exactly. my times work and... hard. And so just to clarify, Subi is Albert Subrats, one of the fastest yes. short course butterflies yes. pretty much ever, right? So I imagine you're hearing him say this. You're like, wait, you crush short course swimming. You Then I believe he was a medalist at yeah. Worlds at one point. I imagine that was pretty impactful coming from a swimmer of his achievement. Yeah, hundred percent. And like, what's funny is like, I feel like I haven't become a swim nerd until like literally last year. I just lived in my own bubble kind of thing. Like I knew who the Mission Viejo crew was. I knew the big distance names, but I didn't really know anyone in the sport of swimming. So like I came to Virginia Tech not knowing who Subi was, not really, I didn't know who, Sergio was at all I just knew that Anton was going there and he liked him so like I got to Virginia Tech with like out knowing who any of these people were and then kind of like learning as I went along like oh like these are like big name people and like I kind of just like happened upon Mm -hmm. it so it feels like um so I feel really lucky in that sense I wonder if that precociousness was a good thing when you first got there though like you showed up and you were just like, yeah, I'm ready to go. Uh, okay. You guys want to coach me? Not, whoa, Sergio yeah. Albert. Oh I my think God. so. <laughs> and just, and like, yeah. Feeling like I had to like, sh- like, I don't know, prove myself. I was just like, okay, I'm here to train because they said I could train here and like, no big deal. So I think that helped a lot. No. Yeah, for sure. And I'm, I'm putting myself in that headspace and I've definitely been in situations before where, I felt mm-hmm. like I had to be impressive, yeah. I guess is the word that I would think of. And it just costs so much extra energy and it's ultimately not guiding you in the right direction. So yeah, showing up with a clean slate, I imagine yeah. that was the right start. I agree. Well, did you have any moments uh, while you were there when you realized, oh, this is, this is why Sergio is who he is and has produced the great talents that he has? I'm, I'm wondering if there was a specific moment that stood out to you, if it's more of a day-to-day um... presence. I think he's really good at the mental game. Um, Because, like, 
I wouldn't say like the training isn't something that I haven't done before. Like, you know, I've, I've trained with great coaches like Bob Bowman and Bill Rose at Mission Viejo and some other really amazing coaches. So I wouldn't say like the training was like this huge shock to me. Like it was what you would expect from a high level coach. I think what was more interesting where you can see that his success comes from is like, he's very in tune to the mental side of swimming and like, um, really when you get upset or something like he breaks it down, why are you upset about this? Like what caused you do you think, why are you upset with this swim? Like it was a good swim. Like let's break it down kind of deal. So I think he was really good at like, um, trying to break down the swim to you in a way that like you could digest, like, you know, when you swim, like, a 4am I would assume and then you touch the wall and it's like not what you want it to be and like you're just upset and like it's just like this really like I don't know this gut feeling that you're just like oh that wasn't what I wanted and then but we never at well the gut feeling the gut feeling would also yes. be barf but yes your point stands um, <laughs> we never ask ourselves like or at least I never ask myself like why am I upset about this and like breaking it down is like was it because I had higher expectations of myself? Is it because I thought my training should have showed more in this race kind of things like that. And like um, breaking it down and like understanding what your expectations are of yourself and of the people around you, I think was really good. And I feel like that ties so well back to what we were talking about earlier about kind of detaching from expectations and what you're supposed to be in swimming. Um, I wonder if that's part of what makes Sergio so great and, what allows him to take pros to the next level because he can sort out like, why are you banging your head against the wall? Like you're here because you want to be right. Right. And I'm wondering if there was a specific situation where you were like, Oh, okay. That this is really happening. Like this is Sergio being what everybody says, why, why it makes him great. Right. And I think that experience for me happened at US Open this past year in Atlanta. Um, it was kind of like my first meet, I would, as an official pro, like in my like, definition of me being a pro, like when I made that transition to be a pro. Mm-hmm. Um, so it was my first meet as a pro. And um, I was like, super hyped for this meet, like ready to go. My training had been on point. I was hitting times in practice, like going faster than I had ever trained before. And I swam the 50 free where I had all these huge expectations for myself. And it was just like, I got out of the pool and I was like, oh, like that was it. Like it was just kind of one of those races that you wish had been worse. So you had a reason to be upset about it. It Right, right. Like you, you wish you'd be like, God, that sucked. But instead it was like, uh, poop. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, it was just like super mediocre like all around it was just mediocre um, uh, yeah man. there's like that numb feeling in your gut about it of like uh well i guess that's what happened <laughs> exactly so yeah i just like felt really like uh about it and i was very upset like because i felt like this was going to be my breakout meet and i was going to show the world who marina spadoni was kind of thing And it just wasn't that. And I was very upset. I was um, crying and like, just like, what the heck happened? Because it was so like, blah, that there wasn't like one thing that I was like, oh, okay, my start was trash. 
or like my breakout was horrible. It was just like all kind of nothing. Right. It was super fuzzy. You couldn't hone in on this is exactly what I did wrong and I'm pissed about that and I'm going to fix it. Exactly. So I just like had this like kind of horrible like feeling like I was like, wow, why am I swimming? Like I'm probably one of the older people on deck here. Um, A lot of my friends are on the U.S. national team and they're kind of in their own world, not really associating with anyone else who's outside of the U.S. national team. So I kind of felt like a little bit on my own. And I went to go talk to Sergio and he was like, "Um, I don't understand why you're so upset. It was a pretty good race. Like there was nothing really wrong. We just have to sharpen some details. And he kind of was like, why are you upset? And I kind of like had to like take that moment to like really think about it. And he was like, why are you swimming this race? Like kind of thing. And I was like, well, I wanted to prove to everyone that becoming a pro was the right choice. And in my eyes, that Mm. didn't exemplify what a pro swimmer should be producing at a taper meet. So you were still attached to an identity and expectations without realizing it. Exactly. And he was like, you're a pro swimmer because you want to be. No one's forcing you to be a pro swimmer and you need to swim for yourself. Like there should be nobody else's expectations on your swims and nobody else's expectations on what it means for you to be at this level. And for me, I was using this meet to like, really show my old coaches like look at how far I've come like look at I've done everything that you guys didn't think I could do I made the right choice by moving across the country kind of thing and it just wasn't what I expected that meet to be and I think for me I was so upset about that and Sergio was like why do you care what these people think they're not the ones whose name is on this like swimming career is your name like you need to Just make sure that you're swimming for yourself and being like producing results that you're proud of. And it kind of had made me like take a step back and be like, okay, why am I swimming as a pro kind of thing? And I think that transitions really well into something that from working with you at clinics, I know you really love to talk about when you talk to kids at Fitter Faster Clinics Mm -hmm. and and I, I want you to talk about this, but just introduce it. You Before every single clinic, I love this, by the way, you tell every kid, hey, we're going to go over these strokes today or butterfly or breaststroke or, or starts or turns, whatever the theme maybe is. But while you're doing it, I want you to think about your why in the sport. And I, the first time you said that, I was like, oh my God, that's, that's so cool. I wish I had thought of that. And so it's such a pure and such a, I don't know, a powerful thing and you deliver it really well. I wonder where that comes from because I love that you give the kids little nuggets to chew on throughout the clinic and then you actually check back with them later and you'll have kids saying like my friends or I love to compete or, you know, it's better than school, whatever it may be. Where did that come? Where did that come from? Because I'm genuinely interested in kind of the beginning of, of that routine that you have. Is that from your experience as a teacher or did you just kind of come up with that offhand? Um, where'd that start? Um, so it definitely came from my days as a teacher. So after I graduated college, 
I became a high school teacher and I taught high school English and English as a second language. And the high school I worked at was a last chance high school. So these students had either been expelled or they really had no other options. Like this was their last chance to get a high school degree. And then on the other side, my English learners were a lot of refugees, a lot of immigrants, kind of people that don't get a lot of recognition, I would say. So working with these kids is really, honestly, really tough. Um, I'm having a hard time kind of balancing like teaching and like kind of like life coaching kind of deal. And Mm -hmm. um, I kind of, there was this one day one of my students came in and she was super tired and like I had noticed a trend that she was just like falling asleep during like lunchtime and like just so tired all the time. And I, I asked her, I was like, Oh, is everything okay? Like, why are you so tired? And she had told me that she would come to school at seven thirty AM and then we would be in school till about three. And then she would go directly from school to her first job at McDonald's, I think. And then she got off that job at like 9.30 at night. And then she went to her second job, which she worked till 4 a.m. in the morning. Oh, Um, wow. And all while she would turn in beautiful homework, like amazing work, like always complete, always goes above and beyond. And I was like, oh my gosh. And I kind of took a survey of my class that way and was like, how many people work jobs? How many people have kids? And all of them, almost all of them had raised their hand for one of those questions. And they all came to school every single day and worked extremely hard to get this, um, to learn English and to get this degree. And I really was shocked by this because it was kind of a motivation that I had never seen before. Um, You know, growing up in Orange County, California, I was very privileged and didn't really see a lot of poverty and things like that. So I was like, how are you guys so motivated to do this every single day? And they just wanted to create a better life for themselves, wanted to create a better future for their families, wanted to make their families proud of them because they had sacrificed so much just to be in the United States. So for them, like, not learning English and not succeeding in high school was not an option. And so for them, their why was like these really profound, deep things. Like what I tell the kids at my camps, I was like, your why isn't one goal. It's what motivates you to make these goals. And when I asked the kids why they were going to school and learning English, even though they had families and had to work till four in the morning, they were just like, very profound um, reasons and things that were like moved me to my core. And I started thinking about why do I do what I do? And in my life, why do I swim particularly? Because it does take up a good chunk of our lives. And, you know, what's the motivation behind making these goals that I make that are pretty lofty. And it's just, I want to kind of be the best that I can be. And look back on my life and realize that I gave 100% and there's no point where I'm like, Oh, I could have done that a little better. Or maybe I could have practiced my technique a little more. Like I just want to like look back and be like, 
wow, I gave it all. And I really, really had the results to show for it. And that seems like a, I guess, a bigger picture. Well, that motivation comes from, right? Like your why is something deeper than day-to-day motivation. Yeah, because motivation is so fleeting, I feel like. Like one day, it's like starting a diet. Everyone diets and you're like, day one, you're like, oh my God, I'm going to kill it. Like this diet's going to be amazing. Day one, so easy. Day two is a little harder. And then by day three, you're like, meh, you know, it's okay. Doubles were hard. I need some pumpkin spice muffins. Exactly. <laughs> no. You know, it's like motivation isn't always going to be there, but your why is so much more deeply rooted in who you are as a person. And I think that is so important to like, as an athlete, as a business person, just as a human being, knowing your why and why you do things, so important. I'm going to have to remember to introduce that before my clinics from time to time. I've been working on something recently that actually ties back to um, what you were saying about meditation and breathing mm-hmm. is I'll tell the kids to try and be present. Yeah. And so like in warm up, I'll say, Hey, notice one thing around you. Um, whether it's the water is cold or I'm tired or whatever it is, just tell me one thing that you notice during warm up, and you can tell, I think I've got to switch it. Cause you can tell that the kids are like, what? Like, <laughs> okay. Right. And half of them will just be like, uh, water's cold. I don't feel like being here. I'm like, all right, fine. But that's on me to switch it up. Right. So maybe there is a deeper thing. Like what is your why? Or what are you thinking about today? But yeah. I think it's really important. I think our why helps us be present, I guess, is where yeah. I'm, what I'm getting at. It definitely does. Cause like, I think when like you just kind of don't think of your why, it's super easy to go through the motions. You're like, okay, whatever, kind of turn the brain off and just like go through the motions, which is so easy to do as a swimmer. Um, and be and be somewhere else while you're doing it, right? Exactly. But like, when, like the why is like in yeah. front of your head or your front of your brain. It kind of like turns on that mental switch that you're talking about. Right. And it jacks you into right now. Exactly. Yeah. Cause I mean, we've all been there. Like I feel like every single practice, especially if it's a super long one, mm-hmm. not, and this is by the way, while I was enjoying swimming very much, but I am, I have had a lifetime of having trouble just being present mainly cause I didn't understand what it was, yeah. but I could spend an entire practice in high school just kind of processing my day and thinking about whatever homework I had that night. And Meanwhile, we're doing, you know, 10, 200 is free IM, descend one to 10, and I'm doing really well with it, but I don't think about it for a single second. It's so, th- it's so strange. Yeah. I have had many sets like that. <laughs> I think we, yeah, I think we all have. Yeah. Um, but cool. speaking of what you're trying to do at your camps, it's like bring a new mental aspect to it. One thing that I just start, I just tried this my last camp and I actually really liked it and I might do it at more camps. So starting with my why before we get in and then afterwards, we started talking about big goals and like I asked some of the kids what their goals were and they were like pretty basic, like make Y-Nats, um, you know, make uh, JOs, things like that. Just the very basic, like just make a cut kind of times. And I kind of introduced them to the topic of 
big goals and goals that aren't going to happen this year or next year. Um, but like goals that are like very long term. Mm -hmm. So I kind of told them the story of me wanting to get my Olympic trial cut. And I made that goal when I was 15 years old. Like it took me 10 years to get an Olympic trial cut. Um, That's a long time. Yeah. Of a very up and down journey not just a very linear, like, Oh, every year I'm improving. Um, And I kind of introduced them to the idea of big goals and like having goals that are kind of scary to tell other people and like, Goals that make you a little nervous, like, oh my gosh, there's kind of no way that I could do this. But just having that goal in the back of your head and being taking little tiny steps toward it and having it be kind of a bigger picture goal, I found it's kind of like interesting and it's a fun little, even if it's just a thought experiment, to just see how big of a goal makes you uncomfortable. Like, Mm. is is getting a why not so big? for you that it makes you uncomfortable or do we need to think bigger than that? Maybe a junior national cut or maybe even like, you know, swimming a 200 butterfly or things like that. Like starting to like think of like big, big goals. And it was, it was interesting the response we got and lots of kids had never thought of like, Oh, three years down the road, four years down the road, five years down the road. And I think having goals, even as adults, like I'm sure you have goals that kind of scare you. And I think for me, this goal was getting the Olympic trial cut was scary. Now I have it. Now my scary goal is making the team. And I think verbalizing it is the scariest part. Did you you almost feel an instinct to have to qualify it too, right as you said it? Or... Was that just like you came out of you and you were like, yeah, that's what I'm doing. Like, do you feel, um, do you feel solid on that, on having that goal, even without having to say like, oh, it's a long shot or, oh, I don't know. Like what goes through your head when you tell people I want to make the Olympic team? I think like when I first started saying it, I was like justifying it. I'm like, well, like, you know, I know it's like far away, but I have been like, you know, improving my times a lot every single time I swim, kind of that thing. Like, so I know, like, maybe I could get there. And now it's just kind of like, okay, well, that's what I want to do. So, you know, if you, if you don't want to be on this journey with me, that's fine. I'm not going to take offense to it. Mm -hmm. You know, if you don't believe in the process, I'm not going to be offended by it. Right. You, you had to, and that's what I was asking about the qualification because, you had to feel like you were worthy of your own goals, right? When you would tell people like, and you had to worry about judgment from other people like, what? Marina wants to make the Olympic team? Like, <laughs> seriously? Right. And that's even when I was like, back to when I was training uh, for 16, I would have to do this whole thing. Like, yeah, you know, I got fourth and 12. I'd like to try to make the team in 16, but I know it's still Michael Phelps and Ryan Lochte. So, you know. Yeah. chance is still a chance. And really what I was doing was probably talking myself out of it. Right. So you have the goal in your head and it's scary and it means a lot to you. Do you keep up little markers of it? Do you have maybe things around your house or maybe like a folder or a phone background? I'd love to know the, I guess the tactile representations you have of your goal. Yeah. I mean, for me, I have my phone background is the Tokyo pool. Mm-hmm. Um, one of my friends sent it to me and he's like, oh, make this your phone background. Then like 
when we get to Tokyo, then you'll know what the pool looks like and you won't even have to like worry about finding your way around. Like you'll already know where everything is laid out on the pool. So like that was interesting for me because like I put this as my phone background, just planning that I would be there. I was like, okay, I need to know what the pool looks like. So I need to look at it every single day. And does that tie to any sort of belief you have about goal setting that you instead of I want to be there, it's I'm planning on being there? Like, is that an is that an intentional switch on your part? Um, I don't think it's intentional. I just I think that's kind of how I've always set goals. Like every time, like for both my when I got both my cuts, I didn't even like imagine the race or visualize the race. I literally just thought of what it was going to be like when I touched the wall and saw that I had made Olympic trials. Mm -hmm. I was like, I already know that I'm going to make it. I just am going to like envision the feeling because I know I'm going to do it. And so like rehearsing the like celebration more. And like, for me, like I think being at Tokyo at the pool would be like me rehearsing the celebration because all the hard work really is done. And the Tokyo is the performance really. Right. That's the fun part. That's the cherry on top. Exactly. So yeah, I think I've always kind of approached goal setting like, okay, well this is going to happen. It's just like, when is it going to happen and how soon? Yeah. Setting it up as an inevitability and you can kind of, you you trust your body to chart and your spirit and your soul and however you want to look at it to chart the path towards it once you've set it up as a marker in the future. Right, exactly. I mean, how do you look at goal setting? Is it kind of similar or? When I am, when I have been aware of it in my life and what you talked about with your why, mm-hmm. I, I, when I have done uh, little checks on my past about, hey, how did I do this when I was doing really good? How did I reach big goals? When my why was really strong, it was really easy to set goals. So for me, my big goal in high school was to make national junior team. I had made a zone camp when I was 14 because I did pretty well at a zone meet. And then when I was 15, I went to the zone camp with all these other people who were my age that I'd heard about that I thought were faster than me. And I think it it was it's it's so funny you mentioned when you got to your group how these girls that you knew and you looked up to, you felt like you just belong with them. Yeah. So that happened to me at the zone camp. It was all these kids that I'd been just as good as at zones. And they were like these scary other figures because I thought everybody worked harder than me or did like crazier stuff than me in practice. And it was like, oh, wait, these are just a bunch of kids like me. Yeah. And the big moment that happened was a national junior team representative. Um, his name's Eugene Godso. He was a Stanford swimmer yeah. for those listening. Um, he came. He came by the pool and he said hey, this is the national junior team. And I'd never heard of it before. I was like, wait, what is this? And he said, it's the best 18 others in the country. You represent the United States. And you put your, you get a USA flag cap with your name on it, along with a bunch of other stuff. And it's the greatest thing in the world. And I was like, that's it. That's what I want. And for me, the visual, the tactile thing that I put in place was I put the cuts on my mirror at my house. And I love telling kids at the clinic this part because, and this is something that I know you like to do as well. I like to make our journeys um, 
more real. Like we are real people that were doing real stuff and doing normal everyday things. So I'd be looking at these cuts on my bathroom mirror for the national junior team while I'm brushing my teeth in the morning and using my inhaler and putting in my retainer, right? <laughs> like I wasn't doing anything special, but I was looking at these cuts and it was scary as hell to me. Mm. And it drove me to, to bust my butt in practice. And within nine months, I went straight from not having Olympic trial cuts to making the junior team in like three different events. And that's happened before, um, but that's happened after that as well. But I want to know, because at these clinics, you start with the why, but you also do the same thing that I like to do, like I said, which is make the journey really relatable. Yeah. And I want to know what what are some things that you like to do to make your journey a little bit more relatable to, to younger swimmers? Um, I think what is great for them to know is that not everyone is born like a record breaker. Like I think they see us at these clinics and they just assume that we're breaking age group records left and right. And, you know, making junior national teams and always the top of the top. And what I like to tell them is like, I was not that person. I was not the person who was breaking age group records. I was very middle of the pack swimmer. I wasn't leading the lane. Um, I wasn't the person that the coach was staying after practice to help um, get a little better. I was very much so just a face in the crowd, I feel like. Mm-hmm. And that's not in a bad way. I just was part of the team, you know? Um, and so I think them knowing that like, you know, you don't have to be born great to achieve, you know, great things. And I just loved swimming. That's the only thing that's kept me going for so long is like, I just love swimming. I love being in the water. I love how it's like a place of like my own place being in the water is my own place. So, um, just that like love and passion for the water really has carried me through. But, you know, I think, these kids think, Oh, to be an Olympian, I have to be good from the time I start. There's no, not a chance. Like we all have different journeys and it's kind of crazy to see some of the people that I swam with when I I was younger, like 13, 14, who were like crushing me in practice. Just don't swim anymore because they just didn't really like it. Mm -hmm. So that's what I like try to tell kids to make it more relatable. Like, I was very normal. I still am very normal, you know, just, I just love swimming. And being part of a crew, being a part of your collective. Exactly. So, and, and I guess coming back to that, because you were in Blacksburg and it was this awesome experience. Yeah. And then the pandemic hit and you had to move. Right. So do you want, you want to take us through that? Because it sounds like you were in a really good place, had this great group of pros Um, what happened once everything shut down and you had to move on to your next site? Um, so yeah, it was really quite a shock. It was like one day we were like completely fine going to all these practices. And the next day, like everything was different. And we had this prom, this pro prom or prom as we called it. And we were all together, like having a great time. 
that was a Wednesday night, Thursday night, everyone was gone. Like everyone had left back to Hong Kong or Taiwan or uh, Frida went back to Egypt and just like everyone was just gone. And, you know, I was still in Blacksburg being an American. This is my home here. So it's not like I had anywhere else to go. Mm -hmm. And a lot of the people just said they weren't going to come back because the U.S. wasn't safe anymore. And for me, I lost a lot of really good training partners and really good friends, like people who had helped me get to the point where I could like truly consider myself a pro swimmer. So I kind of was like, well, there's nothing holding me in Blacksburg anymore. And um, Norbert was looking for a job to keep his visa because he's from Hungary. So he needed mm -hmm. a uh, work visa to stay in the U.S. So we were kind of just like, all right, what do we do next? And he got a job in Tallahassee, which gave him a work visa. So we're like, all right, let's do it. Let's move to Tallahassee. And um, Dan Kessler had just moved over to FSU, who was one of my coaches in college. And I called him up and I was like, hey, we want to move down to FSU. Do you have a spot for us? And he was like, hell yeah, come on over. Good um, old Dan. Love that guy. Yeah, he's the best. But yeah, I mean, I think I just wanted to, Norbert was part of my journey of becoming a pro. And I was like, well, I want to be with you. And, you know, it made sense to move to FSU at that point. And was that a little scary for you guys? Um, not just for the training side, but on the personal side, because you guys were together and you were training together in Blacksburg, but you also had this whole crew of people around you. Yeah. So you're about to make this move together. Were you living together at this point? Yes. I think we had been living together for like a month and a half. So oh, wow. <laughs> very new. It was like, I think in most normal situations, it would be like, well, it wouldn't be a huge deal if one person left kind of thing because the relationship was fairly new. But pandemic hits, you know, it fast forwards a lot of relationships. It's kind of like the make or break. And we did really well with it. So we wanted to move together. And we had already felt like we were a pretty good pair, good partner. We worked well together. Um, so... Yeah, it was it was scary, though, because it was also like, you know, always fighting the judgment of other people, too. And it's like, oh, you guys are already moving together. Wow, that soon. And like, oh, you guys are going to go train together. Oh, do you guys even know if you want the same coaches kind of thing? And like, just like those outside little nagging doubts that people like to plant in your head. Mm -hmm. But it all worked out very well. And you guys had to tighten up and basically become like a a combo of being together, but also being a training partnership. Yeah. Yeah. So when we got to FSU, um, they still weren't sure if they were going to open the pool to pros yet. So it was like beginning of June. We had a city pool that we could train in for an hour a day. So we basically just became each other's coach. And we're coaching each other, swimming with each other, um, just trying to like make this work as best as possible, like make the best out of a not so great situation. 
And I think it was great that I'm a sprinter and he's mid distance because although we are on the same like frequency, I would say we're definitely run on different wavelengths. So like when I'm up, maybe he's down and I can be like, okay, I'll be the person to like be the rock of the relationship today. And then Mm -hmm. vice versa, maybe I'm having like a really down day and which I had a lot of, (laughs) um, then he would like help bring me up. And there were definitely times where I was just like, is this really worth it? Like, you know, why am I doing this? Because like there was that point where we weren't doing any camps, weren't making, wasn't making any money, was barely training. And it was just like, what is the purpose of this? Like I am like struggling to make ends meet to try to get this dream goal that seems so far off right now. We don't even know if Tokyo is going to happen. And Right. You don't even know if there's an avenue for you to reach it. Even if you get to the point where you're capable of it. Exactly. And those were the times when I think having a partner like Norbert was really important because he was like, no, this is just one day. Like, it's fine. We're going to get through this. Like, just like let the bad times happen. It'll be fine and we can get through it and move forward. And so like, it was really good. I think just to have someone who kind of has the same like beliefs as me and like he knows his why and it's definitely was a good person to have with me and then you guys are training together in Tallahassee for a couple months yeah and now you've moved again yes so in a way that kind of accelerates things like I don't I don't know how to put this but it seems like it compresses time in a way where you guys probably feel like you've been together way longer than you have Yeah, I think someone asked us the other day, like, oh, how long have you guys been together? And I had to think about it because it's honestly felt like years. Mm -hmm. Like, well, we're actually almost coming up on our one year. (laughs) Like, it's ridiculous. Like, we've moved three times. So, moving him into my house in Blacksburg and then moving down to Tallahassee and then moving down to West Palm. It's been like, yeah, condensed time into a very short amount of time. But... Yeah, at FSU, the athletic department was like, you know what? No pros. So our coach was like, you know what? It's probably better for you to find somewhere that you can have full access to a pole. Man, they they hit you with the Uno reverse card pretty quickly. Yeah, it was really unfortunate because I was excited to work with Dan again. He's a great guy. But, you know, we needed water. That's all it really came down to. And we just needed a place to swim. You do need water for swimming. Yes. It's like, I was like, wow, damn, I wish I was a runner during this time. Like everyone's out running having a great time during the pandemic. And here we are with no water. Can't do it. <laughs> yeah. You can't, you can't close nature. Um, so you guys are, this relationship's being compressed. You guys feel like you've been together forever. Um, have you guys gotten a dog or... Have you, are you guys taking up any other hobbies together to fill up your time when you're not swimming? Like how, how does that uh, side of your day go? Um, so both of us cook are avid cooks. Um, I'm sure you have seen all of our creations on Instagram. Um, it seems like you guys make awesome stuff. Yeah. So Norbert graduated in hospitality and tourism and he did his internship uh, at the Inn at Virginia Tech as one of the cooks there. 
So he was like always in the kitchen cooking and then his dad's a chef. So he comes from a cool background like that. My dad was also a chef or is a chef too right now. So I also came from the same background. So that's just what we do in our free time. We just cook, 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 and always try new things. Uh, I think during the height of the pandemic, I was like, oh my God, why am I getting so fat? He's like, well, you made three pies in the last three days and we ate them all. So <laughs> it's not really. Uh, Surprised Pikachu face. Wait, exactly. what? <laughs> exactly. I was like, oh, okay. Yeah, that makes sense. But yeah, we cook a lot and Sundays are pancake Sundays, almost every Sunday when I'm not working. And we try to make a new pancake from around the world. So we've we've hit a lot of stops. I think we're pretty good at making interesting pancakes. What's but, your favorite type that you make? Um, I think my favorite one was this like Russian pancake. It had yogurt and caramelized apples in it and a little cinnamon and vanilla. They were super good, like just dense, but also fluffy pancakes. Um, Dang, that sounds awesome. <laughs> yeah, they were really good. And Norbert likes the Japanese ones, the like big, fluffy, Instagram-worthy pancakes. Mm-hmm. But yeah, we haven't gotten a dog, even though I have been begging. I'm like, please, let's get a dog. Norbert, being the voice of reason that he is, um, pointed out that it's not fair because we're always going for clinics. So we'd have to find babysitters for the dog. And then... We're training most of the day anyways, so that leaves the dog at home alone a lot. So, you know, but I mean, I had a great dog name picked out and you conveniently took it before I could get <laughs> a dog before you did. Yes, uh, I, you made it very clear on my Instagram post that the name Boomy is one you were very jealous of. Yes. And I got to tell you, first of all, I don't mind that it's a nerd name from the show Avatar for those who don't know. It's you get like half people who are like, oh, yeah, like Avatar, King Boomy. And I'm like, yeah. And I get this awesome smug feeling of like, yeah, it's a sick name. Yeah. And then half the people, it's a high risk, high reward type name. And so I guess I'm preparing you for when you get your own dog and you name it like Professor Trelawney from Harry Potter or something like that. Um, like a deep lore kind of name that's not obvious. Right. Half the people will go, oh, uh, Boomy, like Boomer. Like, no, Boomy, B-U-M-I. And I'll be like, oh, okay. I'll be like, you know, it's from this nerd show on Nickelodeon, you know, like the kid with the blue arrow avatar was on Netflix. And then they'll do the whole, oh, yeah, that one. I, my buddy told me it's a great show. I guess I have to watch it. And I'll be like, yeah, you totally should. And then we never see each other again. That's great. Yeah, I mean, I you know, I name my dogs weird things. Like, I have a little wiener dog who's with my dad right now. His name is King Louis the Sun Wiener. Named him after the French king, um, the Sun King, because mm-hmm. it's very um, ostentatious, I guess. Very out there. Louis likes to live large, basically, is what I'm saying. He's spoiled rotten, so. I don't mind ostentatious. You can't spell ostentatious without Austin. Exactly. Uh, listeners, maybe spell check me on that. the <laughs> <laughs> same, so it's good. Yeah, so I'm, I'm a fan of a good weird dog name. I heard um, um, 
oh, what was it? Ozzy Posbourne, Prince of Darkness. <laughs> I thought that was fucking hilarious. Or, sorry, bleep that. I thought that was hilarious. <laughs> the best, I feel like the best dog names are when people realize that dogs don't speak English. And don't. And you're just saying a bunch of words that you rewarded with treats and they're just coming to you. Exactly. Right? Like, I, I love my wife, Molly. She loves dogs that are just old man names like Gary or or Joe yeah. or something like that. So it's fun when you can get creative or just, you know, or when people really go meta with it and take it back to the most obvious names like Spot. Yeah. Then it's like, okay, I see what you're doing. Haha, ha, that's fun. <laughs> yeah. So I think after swimming, we'll get a dog. Yeah. that's the well, I hope you guys do. I can tell you, Getting a pandemic dog like many people our age did, it's been quite magical. And picking up picking up poop every day really keeps you grounded. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I think we should I think we should wrap it up there. But before we do, I like to do a little segment with my fellow fitter faster clinicians like yourself. Um I, I call it fitter faster faves. I wanna know your favorite question that you get when you go to swim clinics. And the answer that you normally give to the kid that asks it. Yeah. So I think my favorite one that I get is uh, about my height. So it's usually worded in different ways, but basically it comes down to how have you been able to find success being a shorter swimmer? And I'm 5'5", so that's 5'6 on a good day, but typically 5'5". And, um, that's quite a lot shorter than a lot of the female sprinters in the U S and, you know, I think when I was in college, I was like, wow, this is such a disadvantage for me. Um, I would stand up on the blocks next to like Missy Franklin and Simone Manuel. And you're just like, these are huge girls like towering over me. And it was really intimidating at first. So I love this question because Usually it's girls who ask me after the camp and they're coming over with their mom and you can just see it in their face that they're kind of like almost at the end of the rope. They're like, Oh my gosh, like, what am I going to do? Like I'm short and there's not a lot of, they feel like there's not a lot of room for them to grow. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, okay, maybe you're not going to grow vertically, but you can definitely grow in a, your knowledge of the sport, and B, how you approach the sport. So I think that's, for me, where my swimming took a turn. I was like, instead of looking at what I didn't have, which is obviously height, um, I got to be more creative with my sport. So I got to look at it and break down the sport in a different way than girls who are just naturally gifted vertically. Um, and be like, okay, how can I make this an advantage of mine? So I really found like, for me, I tell the girls, I'm like, your underwaters are going to be your best friend because you do have a shorter frame. You can get a lot faster, higher tempo kicks that are going to just put you on a different level than the rest of the field. Whereas the taller girls, you know, they don't really have to really focus on the underwaters as much because they have that initial height advantage. They dive in, they're already that much farther ahead of you. But if you can really like 
hone in on that underwater skills and start to be more creative. And, you know, you're going to have to work harder and not like physically harder, but you're going to have to work harder, like mentally and on the details. Like it's going to probably take you staying after practice a little bit and talking to your coach and be like, okay, what do you think if I do this with my catch? Okay. What do you think if I do this with my catch? How does this breakout look if I transition the dolphin kick into the freestyle kick like this? And just starting to be more creative. I honestly think not having the height is an advantage because it get, it opens doors that you wouldn't expect to walk through in swimming. And it forces you to be creative. Even if you're not a creative person, it really forces you to use that other side of your brain, which is really cool. It's a shift in perspective and it comports really nicely with everything you've talked about today uh, with the mental side of swimming. Yeah. So Marina, thanks so much for your time. This was a lot of fun. Um, we got to do this again sometime. Yeah, definitely. So if people want to find out more about your Russian pancake recipe <laughs> or having super fast underwaters, even though they're short, uh, where can they find you on social media? So my social media that I use the most is Instagram and it's Marina Kilani, M-A-R-I-N-A. K-E-A-L-A-N-I. Kilani being my middle name. So, yeah. There you go. Find her on Instagram, Marina Kalani, or go to fitterfaster.com and search Marina Spadoni, because that's your last name. <laughs> Just double check in there. Um, to find her Fitter Faster clinician page. And if you feel so compelled, request her for a clinic. Yes, let's go. All right. Uh, have a great day, Marina. Thanks, you too. Talk soon. Bye. All right. I'm here with my buddy, Matt. Uh, We're going to do a fun segment that I want to do with him every once in a while. And it's called Want to Know Something Cool. I named it after a lot of great memories I have with Matt where we'll get on the phone. We'll talk about stuff. And he'll be reminded of a cool fact that he learned or some far out topic. And he'll go, want to know something cool? And we always end up talking about some stuff that stretches my mind, shapes my perspective of (laughs) existence in the universe. And for the inaugural version of this segment, I want to talk to him about something that's called, I believe, the Mandela effect. Is that right, Matt? That's correct. Yeah. So, So before Matt goes into it, he told me about this in a phone call, I think two years ago. And I still remember it today because I was outside my apartment. We talk about this and then I had to go inside and basically just lay down for like three hours to process it. Cause I was like, this is so freaking weird. So Matt, give us a uh, broad overview of what the Mandela effect is. All right. So where to start here? Yeah. The Mandela effect. So trying to jog my memory, but the basically it's on the pretense of, you know, false memories or things in your past. And what really resonated to me were like things that I just felt like shaped my childhood when I look back there. But there is a collective group of people who have these false memories. And the reason they call it the Mandela effect is, you know, back in 2009, there was a large group of people who were absolutely certain that Nelson Mandela actually died in a South African prison in the 1980s. 
which was a big, big world event, right? right? So when you look into it, though, you go look it up. I mean, I'm not the most, I'm not the best history buff. Nelson Mandela actually uh, got out of prison, came into power, and passed away in 2013. So there's a lot of people who don't remember it that way, but the ones that kind of really got me interested were ones like you've ever, have you ever watched uh, Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs? Sure. So finish the phrase, blank, blank on the wall. Mirror, mirror on the wall. Yeah, it's not mirror, mirror. It's never been. <laughs> it's magic mirror on the wall. Come on. Uh, yeah, I know. And I mean, I think you could say that to almost anybody in in the United States, and they're going to say mirror, mirror on the wall. So, so no, you look back and there is no evidence of it being mirror, mirror. And so it's these collectively held memories that people are certain of, right? Yeah, they would like, for example, check the, do you ever read that book of the, the bears, the, what is the it? Ber- the Berenstein bears. Yeah. That's not Berenstein though. It's Berenstein. What? Yeah. I, it doesn't I even sound good. No, nor does like, I remember my parents used to read me these books all the time. I used to read them to Sophia when she was a kid. Berenstein or something weird. It's not Berenstein, which is how we all remember it. Dude. <laughs> okay. I feel like I got to go lay down again, but I think we need to dig more into this because you've thought about this theory a lot. I want to know your feelings about it and how you hold it as a belief. Do you see it as an idea of false memory, a false shared memory? Is it a spiritual thing where a bunch of people believe the same thing and there's this collective human consciousness? Or are you more of on a quantum mechanics side of it where these people might actually have these memories? Well, it depends on what day you catch me on. Honestly, and where how many beers I've had in me. <laughs> <laughs> I well, say, where where are you at today? Well, here, I'll take you through the history of what I thought on this. In 2000, what was it? I think 2013 is when I came across this. And remember how screwy the world was in 2013, which we're still in that messed up phase. But I I saw this article on, like, they had, they were trying to describe this and they thought it related to a point in time where we had the lar- the LHC apparently changed the weight of an electron, which no physicist thought that was possible. And so there was a bunch of theories spinning around that we got actually sh- thrown into an alternate universe. And it happened to correlate with when Trump got elected. And that's when stuff got so screwy. And so I was kind of like, yeah, maybe I could entertain that thought. Maybe we're in some weird alternate reality that I that it was ma- magic mirror on the wall, you know. Uh, and I think actually that's when I told you about this theory, you know. Yeah, and it kind of built it built off of that, and you had some other theory of your own. Yeah. So after I talked to you about it, um, I did a little research myself. And at first, when you told me about it, I was like, okay, I've, I've heard throughout my life that memory is a super pliable thing. It's incredibly inaccurate, which is true. And you and I both know that. And we've learned that from, you know, 
one-on-one psychology courses in college. But when I did a little bit more research, there's an entire section of the internet, and I'm, I, I might be in on this too, who believe this large, large Hadron Collider thing, and they believe some, that they were something that's called retconned, which is in uh, media lingo, that's when a fictional character is changed after something's been established about them. And so in their minds, this group of people, they believe that they were blipped from one quantum reality to another. And so their past has been retconned that they're now in this new reality. So in their reality, Nelson Mandela was dead in 2009. And he, you said he didn't pass away until 2013, correct? Mm-hmm. And, no, and 1980. But the right, but yeah. the current day yeah. in in this reality, he didn't die until nineteen or two thousand thirteen. Mm-hmm. Okay, and in their reality, um, it was the Bernstein Bears, and now it's the Berenstain Bears, which is still insane to me. Um, Completely and insane. In their, too. Yeah, and in the and then I think my childhood was a lie. It, it was either a lie or it was a different quantum version of ourselves. Uh, version of our childhood and i'm sure i just completely butchered that lingo yeah but I, we all get the idea though yeah so the, the theory is um when the lhc changed the weight of the electron and all the experimenting they've been doing there it's basically blipping people around to different uh quantum quantum realities honestly i i hope i get blipped into one where i'm just a billionaire that'd be sweet I know, right? Can you just blip me? <laughs> Can you blip me to where this podcast is bigger than Joe Rogan, please? <laughs> are, we, are we starting blip as a term? Yes. I'm going to uh, start using it. It's a request in the universe. Hey, universe, uh, blip me, please. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Only you and I are going to get it, though. And maybe our couple people who listen to this. Well, asking you shall receive. Maybe... Um, Maybe the the LHC people are listening in on this right now and they'll put a little note like blip Austin and Matt to something awesome. So you want to know something cool, though? Check yes. this out. This is this is more pertaining to my current day thought on this. Right. So I've been looking through this and I've been like, OK, some of this can be explained like magic mirror on the wall. Everybody thought mirror, mirror. And well, guess what? It was in Shrek. It was mirror, mirror on the wall. So everybody watched Shrek. That's a monumental part of our childhood. Maybe that changed. Still doesn't explain why they said it was mirror, mirror on the wall. But regardless, you can find explanations for a lot of this stuff. Well, I've been doing, I just stumbled across this thing the other day. You've seen polarized sunglasses, right? Sure. Polarization. It's, and I, by the way, since I was a kid, I love that it can just block out the um, the shimmering on water. Mm-hmm. It's clearly better than other sunglasses, but what about them? So, do you know how you can tell if you have a polarized lens? You look at water and it's a reflection, right? Well, that helps. Yeah. I mean, normal sunglasses will do some filtering, but yeah, polarized, are, they'll block out all that light that is coming off the water. But if you have two pairs of polarized lenses... What they say is happening is it's blocking all vertical waves, right? Vertical light waves. If you put two next to each other at a 90 degree way and like 90 degrees from each other, you'll block all horizontal and all vertical light. So almost no light will go through. So if you have two pairs, you just hold them up um, 90 degree from each other and it's going to block almost all of it, right? 
Makes sense. And it'll, and it'll be like wearing nightshades to bed. Yeah, exactly. Well, check this out. You get a third pair of Polaroid sunglasses and you put it 90 degrees from that, it lets all the light through again. <laughs> so tell me that it's being blocked. No. <laughs> they still claim it's being blocked. Quantum physics can't explain it. So and my... Go ahead. Go ahead. Well, I was going to say, so my whole thing is, you know, they sit here and they create all these stupid explanations saying, well, it's almost as if the the third pair of lenses going back to the first and telling it to let it through so that, and to cancel it out. I just think they don't really know what the hell a quantum wave is. <laughs> like it obviously isn't traveling like a wave would through water, you know? Yes. <clears throat> so I just found it funny that you can have such a simple thing that is in your house, everyday household product, and you can, baffle scientists with what's happening on a quantum level so i think they have no idea <laughs> and i think we're still at the very beginning of this quantum stuff and people like yourself matt they're gonna bring all this fun stuff to the fore right here on my podcast <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah exactly i don't know if that had a real point in all honesty other than to say that if we start talking about what they're doing in lhc and how they're describing it. If they can't explain how my freaking sunglasses work, I'm probably going to only take what they say with a grain of salt. I think that's what I'm trying to say. <laughs> well, let's leave it there. Um, Matt, thank you for stopping by. And Yeah, thanks for having me. I had a good time. Yeah, me too. That was a fun little snack. Uh, we're going to have Matt back on soon for another segment of Want to Know Something Cool. But in the meantime, I'll catch you later, buddy. All right. Good talk hey, to you. Yeah. And t test your polarized sunglasses before you buy them. I, yeah, I have been. I've been blowing people's minds on the boats. <laughs> All right. I'll catch you later, buddy. Yeah. Talk to you. Yes, yeah. All right. That's the show. Thanks for stopping by and hanging out with us today. And special thank you to Marina for chatting with me. Always enjoy our talks when we work clinics together. And I'm glad that we got to put something down on a podcast. Maybe next time she'll share her pumpkin spice muffin recipe. Um, keep an eye out over the next couple weeks. I'm going to be producing a lot of ISL content. Uh, competition starts this week in Budapest. And I'd really love to get the perspective of the swimmers that are over there swimming and competing. And I just think the ISL thing is incredibly fascinating. It's unprecedented in the sport of swimming based on our history with lack of pro leagues and lack of a real pipeline to being a professional that existed before. Um, it seems like it's about to completely change the dynamic of being a really good college swimmer and what prospects you have once you're done with your eligibility. So I want to talk about that. I want to talk about what it's like to be in Budapest and quarantine off for a swimming competition for a month, month and a half, maybe longer. Uh, besides that, talking to a couple great coaches as well and a few other people that I find really interesting in my life. So rate, review, subscribe. As always, you can DM any questions to the pod at Pro Corner Podcast or email the pod at austin at procornerpodcast.com. See you soon.